Mate, this frog sounds like it's suffering. Who's that little guy? <laughs> What's he doing down there? It's... <laughs> is this definitely a frog? It's definitely a frog, yeah. Okay. I had a choice of three different calls for this frog. And this one was the one I found the most amusing. I don't know if it's the <laughs> yeah. most, like, typical of said frog. So I apologise if it isn't. It sounds like it's... Sounds like it's, sounds like it's in some kind of turmoil. Right, I mean, I've got absolutely no frame of reference. Well, I've heard a few frog calls. I've got a bit of a frame of reference, but I've got to admit, I'm also losing track of which frogs we've used or not over the episodes. I went for one that was thematically appropriate. Okay, so it's from Florida. I'm not saying anything, but I went one for one that's that's thematically appropriate. And if we have done this one before, I apologise. Okay. I've got, um, let's just go grey tree frog. You're half right. You're half right. It's a tree frog. It's a tree frog. Okay. But not the grey tree Go on, frog. Put me out of my misery. It's not the Cuban tree it frog. It is the Cuban tree frog. Yeah. Whoa. Is that, I think we have had this frog. Oh man, I was pretty close. Right? Damn. Maybe I'm getting better frog calls than I thought. Yeah. I'm pretty pleased. I mean, I'll take that as a sort of, I'm not giving myself a point, but I think in terms of sort of frog based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. street cred definitely it's definitely a big one yeah decent okay yeah so this is actually another invasive species in florida then yes that seems to be the consensus as far as i've gathered yeah it, it i don't know i wasn't finding anything that i was i, I mean it didn't look into it that hard but um it certainly seems like the consensus on amphibia web is that it's introduced to florida and various islands and really originates from the bahamas and the cayman islands and uh, unsurprisingly, Cuba. Cool. Yeah, man. Well, we were obviously very topical because we're going to be talking about invasive species in Florida, right. as we seemingly quite often do. But yeah, nice choice. I like Cuban tree frogs. I think they're cool. They are cool. It's, I think, yeah. Is this different than the cocky frog? I don't... Or is it the same thing? I don't know. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As in different or it is the same thing? Yeah, it's the different. It's different. Okay. Yeah. Different. Completely different. That's from Puerto Rico. Ah. Anyway... All right, well, let's go over, shall we? Let's start talking about our paper for this week. So invasive species back in Florida. How can you how can you be talking about Florida without talking about some sort of invasive or introduced a little sort of herpetological renegade that's been thrown out of a pet shop during a hurricane and is now making a new life for himself. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. This is a paper by Derso and Rivero. This year, 2023, Black Spiny-Tailed Iguana, Use of Gopher Tortoise Burrows in Buckingham, Florida, published in Florida Field Naturalist. So yeah, you're right. Florida, at this point, it's basically just Jurassic Park, isn't it? Absurd number of invasive species. Would you like to list some? Because there's a wonderful list in the introduction of this paper of... I was thinking we could sort of read it quickly as a sort of sarcastic demonstration (laughs) of just how bad. We're on the same page here, yeah. Yeah, shall I just blast through it? We'll talk a little bit more about gopher sources in a second. But these are the interactions that gopher sources are known to have had inside their burrows with invasive species. So we have red imported fire ants. I think they're just called red fire ants. Longhorn crazy ants, Mm -hmm. little fire ants. Emery's sneaking ants greenhouse frogs, domestic cats, nine-banded armadillos, red-footed tortoises, 
Burmese pythons, Argentine black and white tegus, brown annals, brown basilisks, northern curly-tailed lizards, green iguanas, black spiny-tailed iguanas. So all of these invasive species are known to frequent the burrows of gopher tortoises. Gopher tortoises are a native species. They're found in southeastern USA, so they're a big part of their ranges in Florida. They're actually threatened because of habitat loss and degradation, humans yep. messing everything up, but also probably or possibly due to invasive species. And we've talked about gopher tortoises, they're ecosystem engineers. They build these really deep, nice burrows that they use to sort of hang out in, lay their eggs in, create themselves a nice, cool, humid microclimate. And lots of other animals use them because they're just nice. Well, you know, they're there, aren't they? Exactly. Why would you not? But yeah, there's a lot of invasive species have come. One of these is the black spiny-tailed iguana, which... It's probably the second most famous species of invasive iguana in Florida. The first being the green iguana. Black spiny-tailed iguanas are a bit smaller than the green iguana, but not that much smaller. And they're native to the lowlands of Central America. I would sort of call them a bit slimmer than your classic green iguana, right? They're a little bit sort of leaner, a bit more prominent sort of striping on the back, maybe. And obviously less green. Yeah, they've got cool black stripes. Yeah, cool black stripes, less green, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The scientific name is Tenosaura similis. And Ben, as you kind of alluded to just now, they were introduced probably via the pet trade, either by accidental escapes or deliberately by bozos letting their pets go. Or option number three, a hurricane might have destroyed a mysterious exotics breeding facility and let them all loose. I've never heard that story before. Yeah, it might even have been the same thing as the <laughs> Burmese pythons, right? Because it's around the same time. Because this started in 1979. I think the Burmese pythons were like 80s. How big was so this pet shop? It must have been a beast of a pet shop, yeah. mate. Yeah. Well, you know, I suppose, yeah. How many do you need to create a population? Uh, that's another question, yeah. Probably, probably not that many. Usually more than two. But, you know, lizards and their parthenogenesis, I wouldn't say not one either. You can never know. But yeah, so these in their native areas in uh, sort of Central America and Central Panama to Southern Mexico, these black spiny tailed iguanas, they like burrows and they either dig them themselves or they'll also use natural rock crevices. They'll also go under buildings where there are buildings. And so when they're introduced to Florida, unsurprisingly, they like to use existing burrows of gopher tortoises. And there has been some suggestion in the literature that if too many spiny-tailed iguanas come or use a burrow, the tortoises will get spooked and leave. So that kind of prompted this study. They are known to sort of like making little side channels and second entrances to burrows. And they lay lots of eggs. They probably lay their eggs in the burrows. Spiny-tailed, black spiny-tailed iguanas can lay up to 88 eggs, which is probably part See, of the reason they've been of, so successful. That's a lot of eggs, right? It's a lot more iguanas. Yeah. And there's been one, one single recorded instance of a black spiny-tailed iguana eating a gopher tortoise. The one recorded instance was a paper in Hurt Review, and they basically found that there was this massive male black spiny-tailed iguana, and they caught it and killed it as part of a um, control effort. And they looked at its gut contents, they were sort of analysing what they'd been eating, and they found perfectly in the stomach all the, the sort of scoots off the back of the tortoise and they pieced them back together and it was like a perfect little tortoise shell oh. of a juvenile gopher tortoise so they you know there is at least one instance of them eating them the other problems they could give the tortoises are eating the eggs which is probably a little bit more likely right but they'll also they may accidentally smash the eggs while they're sort of doing their own modifications to yeah. burrows it really is a still a question of how much this sort of scales up right it's it's there are instances so people know it's sort of possible but not necessarily the 
extent or frequency of this tortoise smashing behavior. Yeah, this is it. And so that kind of prompted this study and the authors of this paper went out and they found, I think, 69 tortoise burrows. And then they set up trail cameras looking at them sort of bits and pieces of time tried to record whether or not there was going to be any interactions, any spiny-tailed, black spiny-tailed iguanas present. And to be honest, of the 69 burrows, they only saw five that actually showed any sign of iguana use. Yeah. One of which was being used by a bunch of different iguanas, like maybe up to five different iguanas, and a gopher tortoise, which was still using the burrow. And so I think, to be honest, there wasn't really that much evidence that they studied 69 burrows. They didn't see that much interaction. And so... Yeah, they didn't see any direct evidence of kind of agonistic interactions where the tortoises and the iguanas were fighting or anything like that, or any sort of direct displacement of tortoises from their burrows in this study. And so I think there's kind of two ways to look at this, really. You can either think of it as, oh, okay, well, then maybe it's all right. Maybe they're not actually bothering them that much. Mm -hmm. Or it could just be that maybe it's if they're going to bother the tortoise and shoo them out of the burrow, maybe it happens quite quickly and they're not likely to catch it on film. That's a possibility. They were they were sort of time lapsing every minute, and it is possible yeah. that sort of behaviours were missed between that minute if they were very short and sharp. Yeah, or even maybe just like if the burrow is actively being used, the chances are that the tortoise is still. I don't know. Yeah, I I just wonder. Maybe there's other burrows around where they didn't find a tortoise. That yeah, the they do admit using maybe the the sort of sampling that was done could have missed burrows in sort of denser less easily accessible areas but then also there's this sort of like there's no reason to assume that the iguanas are preferentially using those areas anyway so yeah it's still a little bit sort of maybe something's missed but nothing jumping out as being definitely missed if you get me yeah it sort of tentatively seems like the tortoises don't really care about the iguanas and i mean you know you've got all these other animals badgering the tortoises coming down their holes and sort of Sitting in yeah, you've got spending snakes, time birds, in. humans, fox squirrels, armadillos, raccoons, coyotes, hogs, and other iguanas, right? Humans. That's on, on the little plot. Who in their right mind is slithering their way down a gopher tortoise burrow? Well, you know, it's cosy down there. <laughs> oh, I'm so hot. I want to cool down. I'm I don't think it was suggesting that humans were slithering their way down into the burrows, more that they were seen on the trail camera photos. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So they were in the vicinity. In the vicinity, yes. It's not a humans using gopher tortoise burrows as as shelter. I mean, it would be quite tricky. The biggest one they found in terms of width was, I think, 50-ish centimetres? No, 40 centimetres width. So that would be a 50-centimetre tortoise? Maybe. Because as we now know, they turn around in the They do turn around, yes. But I suppose it depends on their sort of length to width ratio doesn't it yeah the hole tends to be about the same width as the tortoise's long so the tortoise can do a little spin around ah, because right, you remember yes. the first time we were talking about yes and we tortoises. thought they, they could get stuck face down in the i thought they had <laughs> i thought they had to reverse it in <laughs> so that they could get yeah, back out park. which is obviously so absurd because if you're using a hole as a sort of retreat from predators you don't have to reverse in yeah. it's the most impractical thing like tortoise has got to do a three-point turn to escape being eaten but yeah so Humans would I be think tricky. The is, is you could stick your head in one. I think the tortoise is likely pretty tolerant of these spiny-tailed iguanas. One thing I think would be quite a good study to do would be to sort of pen off a big area, nice sandy area, quite dry, but not too dry. Perfect burrow sand, yes. you know? And then put a bunch of tortoises in there, a bunch of spiny-tailed iguanas in there, and just do like a little common garden experiment and see, okay, will they actually bother them? 
I think a little bit of that would be interesting. You're rightly confirmed, because that's one thing they did find is that these gopher tortoises prefer the open, open canopy areas for where their burrows are. But I think the real bit that they highlight in the discussion that, that gets me thinking is this sort of density dependent aspect of it, where, okay, a few iguanas bumming around, that's not too much of a problem. And maybe the iguanas actually have a preferential shelter, which is human habitation and those sorts of anthropogenic structures that they can freely use. But as you start adding a few more iguanas and a few more iguanas, maybe those anthropogenic areas and the sort of hidden cubbies in buildings start getting filled up. And where do those next iguanas go? And then you start getting a little, you know, there's a few more in some tortoise burrows and a few more. And then maybe the tortoises get fed up and move on. And I do wonder whether what we're seeing with this study and this sort of data is early stage, low density iguana sort of impact, which could sort of change quite dramatically if you were to ratchet up the number of iguanas roaming around causing trouble. Hmm. There is often that lag, isn't there, between mm-hmm. a species sort of establishing and then yep. becoming a, a ruinous invasive. They've just got to get the numbers up in some cases. Possibly. So yeah, long term, maybe it'll be worse. But the optimistic sort of angle on it is that these tortoises do already share burrows with other species and make do. So, you know, maybe they're relatively robust to this this sort of interloper sort of behavior Mm. that the iguanas may exhibit at higher density i don't know i'd be interested to know if there's much like overlap in the diet as well because i feel like these are animals which could be eating quite similar things yes the only sort of bit that they highlighted they highlighted that at the end of discussion that they might be competitive for similar foliage but simultaneously we've got this wonderful um not wonderful in fact in the sense of good but wonderful in the sense of like intriguing and how these things sort of synergize and make things worse that the Iguanas might act as a disperser, a seed disperser for this um, non-native Brazilian pepper, which in turn can increase canopy cover and therefore make fewer places for the tortoises to build their burrows if they're preferring this open canopy, non-shaded sort of areas. Yeah, it's, it's one of these weird synergies that would be fascinating to see. It's bad news for the tortoises, obviously, but uh, it would be... I don't know. I find those sorts of processes really interesting where it's almost when you talk about those sorts of things, you always think of humanity changing its environment to suit its purposes in various ways. But this might be an iguana coming in and sort of changing its environment to suit its purposes. Maybe not deliberately. I'm not going to give them, you know, can't blanch credit for it, but it's kind of it would be kind of cool to see these two things sort of working Mm. together, even if it's for a bad sort of end result. This is the thing. I mean, when you introduce an invasive species to a new area, it it's, you know, a lot of the times when you see papers about it, you're looking at interactions between two species. Right. So in this case, we've got a spiny-tailed iguana and we've got a tortoise. Yep. It's like, okay, well, how are these things interacting now that they've been introduced? But the reality is that they live in this really complex community of hundreds of species yep. interacting together. And so, yeah, you know, in I think it's um, a lot of these studies we'll focus on two species because it's easy for us to comprehend and understand. But actually, if you really want to know how an invasive species affecting an area, you need to like look at community wide impacts. Yeah. And there's really not that many papers that do that yet because it's, it, you know, you kind of bump into the same problem you have with all ecology, which is it's an insanely it complex gets system. And it gets tricky. Really, really crazy. Yeah. And you have to control yeah. for some stuff to be able to ID effects. I mean, you look at something like the wolves in Yellowstone is your classic like trophic cascade example. And the debate surrounding that is, 
never ending. <laughs> but a lot of that comes from just the complexity of it. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, iguanas are no joke. This is an animal which is like well over a meter long. Potential to have quite serious impacts on the ecosystem. But yeah, I mean, it's fun, isn't it? It's fun to talk about Florida. It's a completely bonkers place where anything goes in terms of wildlife. I mean, <laughs> it certainly seems it. Yeah, what a species wild, making a go really. of it. Yeah. Lots and lots and lots of things. And I mean, oh, yeah, like people keep sending me, I can't remember his name, and I'm not going to promote it because it's not terrible, but the way he handles things is a bit dumb. But yeah, there's this guy on like TikTok and Instagram who just goes out and finds invasive species in Florida. And mate, it's crazy. Like, it's literally just insane. Like, this guy's obviously a pretty good herper. He can find stuff. And like, you know, he'll just go out and it's like, oh, Tokay gecko. Oh, Argentine tegu. Oh, look, Burmese python. It's They're just chameleons. They're just all over the place, everywhere, and seemingly in quite high abundance. So yeah, this ecosystem of complete and utter carnage is going to be really, really interesting to keep studying. The counterpoint is, so he's not going to put up videos of like, I didn't find anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, like, even if he spent hours trying to find them, it's still just insane. But they're there at all, is is the insanity. These are all just like, yeah, you know, you got, oh, here's a species from South America. Here's a species from Southeast Asia. It's just like... (laughs) All living, here's a species from North Africa. They're all just living harmoniously in the canopies of Florida. Big quotations around harmoniously. <laughs> Big quotations. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating though. Yeah, terrible. Don't let your pets go. But, you know, plenty of people already have, so. Might as well enjoy the intriguing stories that come out of it while we can. Exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, have you got anything else about black spiny-tailed iguanas? I don't believe I do. I don't know, I just really enjoyed it for a chance to talk about gopher tortoises being these ecosystem engineers that apparently a bunch of other animals massively benefit from, be them native or not, which, Mm. I don't know, I kind of love that. Oh, and it seemed like they didn't care which way their burrows pointed in terms of cardinal direction. (laughs) Case closed. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, <laughs> they do say in the discussion, maybe, maybe there's something going on there, and, but you'd need a bigger sample to really be confident. Cool. So, um, yeah, have you got any other business? I do. I was sent a paper by a friend of the show, Jack, which is just wonderfully intriguing. And because it's this weird, I don't know why I find it intriguing. I suppose it's intriguing because I wouldn't expect geckos to eat or have a discernible impact on bird life. So it's this paper by Lopez et al. talking about these wonderful giant wool geckos, is their common name, Tarantola gigas. They're endemic to Cabo Verde, and they live with other... What is Cabo Verde? Sorry. It's a couple of islands. Is it a couple of islands or one island? Off the coast of sort of North Africa, if you were to head northwest in the Atlantic Ocean. I believe they're volcanic. Cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So they're off the west coast. Off the west coast, yes. It's more west than northwest, I suppose. Uh, Cabo Verde is a group of the islands and then separate islands within. But the point is, endemic species, you've got these wonderful giant endemic wall geckos. You've got these endemic bird species, seabirds and also passerines, like the rasso lark. And... The impression I get from the paper is that it's a little bit of a tricky conservation situation they've got themselves into. So naturally, endemic species on islands having a little bit of a tough time. You want to help them out. Specifically, you know, let's say you want to boost up the larks or something like that. Okay. 
need to help out the larks, that's fine. Help them out, get rid of sort of predators, give them a little boost, help eggs and nesting success. But what happens when the thing that's eating your larks and loves eating your larks, seemingly, is also an endemic that you're also trying to protect, which is this giant wall gecko. So basically, it's a little... Di- they have to be killed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. You just need more of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically a dietary study trying to work out what these geckos eat. And number one, there's a whole bunch of fish. So that was immediately weird to me. Is this land-dwelling wool gecko eating fish or having fish in its diet. But apparently it's because it's eating the sort of remnants and remains and sort of excrement of these seabirds and things. What a lie. Right? They just seem like the, the ultimate just island scavenger little sort of chubby wool <laughs> just gecko. Eating turds. Like yeah. eating the eggs and young of these passerine birds, these sort of larks and, and sparrows, but then sort of cruising around the seabirds and eating whatever remains of fish and sort of bird poop they can get a hold of. So their whole diet is this mishmash of like seabirds, fish and like land dwelling birds. And Basically, there's a little bit of conservation success. They seem to be making a bit of a comeback with things. The trick is that the larks are making a bit of a comeback on one of the islands, and they're planning on reintroducing the geckos alongside that. But the fear is, because the geckos have this relationship with the larks in terms of like just requiring eating their eggs for, or eating them and having an impact on them for about 25% of their diet is what it's looking at, there's this fear this other endemic is going to compete with the endemic that they're trying to protect, predominantly the lark. There's a little bit of caution of, well, do we need to let the larks get a bit more established before we let the geckos in and reintroduce them? Or is it just a bad idea entirely and we should just focus on protecting the gecko somewhere else? Or, yeah. Wow. It's a really intriguing sort of setup because you're trying to protect these two species, multiple species, all simultaneously, but they have this not particular i mean they're dependent on each other in some regards but more so the geckos dependent on the larks in a negative kind of way and the lark population seems to be dependent on like rainfall and climatic stuff that varies year to year you've got to be cautious with adding another pressure to an already like fluctuating low population species and it's Mm, that's oh sounds really difficult yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of these, uh, yeah, this, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, about like community dynamics. Yeah. There's all of these interrelationships, which are so important. And you wonder if actually there's like a benefit to the larks of some kind of having these geckos right. around or just the broader environment. One of the reasons they're thinking that, well, you should just introduce them and just let them go is they might actually be doing a sort of uh, sanitation-like job because they're eating sort of bird excrement and sort of uh, bits of regurgitant which haven't been consumed by the young or like duff infertile eggs in the nest, they basically might be cleaning up after the birds and and helping them in that way. And that might be sort of more beneficial than the occasional egg that they take that's fertile and would lead to viable young. So, yeah, there is a potential benefit. Maybe give the birds a few years to get a few nests set up and then get the geckos in there. I suspect that's what they're going to do. I suspect that that's going to be the conclusion is to sort of lag the geckos and see how that goes well it's cool really cool case study though and uh yeah i mean yeah i think it's probably quite indicative of the decisions that people are going to have to be making conservationists are going to have to choose 
what to put back and where and yeah i don't know though it just is like a on a basic fundamental level i just feel like the number one thing we should be trying to sort of conserve or replicate is the complexity of food webs i feel like to some extent i kind of lean lean towards the side of the actual individual species is less important than the role it's playing so like just having complex things is probably having more interactions is probably broadly better than less it gives you a bit more sort of redundancy it should yeah i think there's definitely an argument for that definitely i think with this one it's you almost have to focus on the species because there are no no sort of alternatives right you've got this very limited endemic sort of setup so it has to be this wall gecko and it's more about how you get back to that complex food web rather than focusing on one species over another because i mean at the end of the day if you didn't have the larks you're not gonna have the geckos so it's you need both of them to exist for that complexity to exist, right? Hmm. Yeah, it would just be a shame for the birds to win automatically because they're birds. Well, this is the thing. I, the impression of the paper is I, I feel like it's not sort of poo-pooing the idea of getting the geckos over there, more just making sure there's enough of a buffer that when they arrive and maybe there's a bad year with rain, the geckos aren't going to swoop in and eat all the eggs and just sort of push them over the edge. Sure. Because that'll be bad for the geckos yeah, next yeah, year anyway. Yeah. So I think that's more it is the understanding and making sure it's done right. Hmm. So the uh, complexities of Cabo Verde. Yeah. Yeah. Off the coast of, well, a long way, you know, 300 kilometers off the coast of Senegal. Well, just this weirdness of fish being in a gecko's diet is just something that feels weird to me. I don't know why. It just feels weird. Yeah. I would wager there aren't many geckos that end up with fish in their diet, even if it is. Right. After having been through the body of a bird. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder what the favourite is. I wonder if they prefer sick or poo. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think they can make a distinction <laughs> through their methods. <laughs> and all the fish, the I fish mean, the species are highlighted all yeah. about 2% of, their, 2% of their diet. Yeah. Because you know birds, they do that. What's it called? The regurgitant that they give the babies. I don't know its proper name. I thought, you, I thought you'd know that. No. But yeah, I mean, I imagine it seems disgusting, but if it's good enough nutrition for a baby bird. It's probably great for a gecko. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Power them up I for mean, a week. We like yolk, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's it. So that's cool. So um, have you got any other business beyond that? Nope. That was fun little gecko story. Okay, cool. Well, um, yeah, I haven't either. So... Um, yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. Shout out to the Patreons, amazing people who support the podcast. If you'd like to do the same, you can. Patreon.com slash Highlights. Christmas is coming up, so if you want to get some Herp Highlights merch for your favourite Herp Highlights listener, you can at redbubble.com slash Highlights. Beyond that, we're on social media. And I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.